believers, we do things that we're mandated to do. And, uh, and we do things, we do that because we are a set-apart people. We, uh, I mean, we're, we're, we serve a God that's holy. And today we're going to be reading some about Hezekiah, learning about some steps that he took in restoring worship. Because we can see in our own nation that uh, amongst evangelicals that there's a necessity that uh, not only do we stay focused on the parameters of what worship are that God defines, but, but that we're in a continual state of restoring it and, and realigning ourselves over and over. Um, well, let's go on ahead and again, let's go before the Lord in prayer when we start the message. Father, thank you for the richness of your word. Thank you for that your scripture teaches itself. And may this morning, may we be good stewards as we open your word and uh, your spirit moves within us and we find those places of application so that we st- step into being that set-apart people um, and have a worthy walk. In your son's name we pray, amen. So we see that there's a consistent theme between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and that's, uh, of course, that God is holy. The Jews were chosen or are a chosen set-apart people, and uh, expectation was uh, and is that they be a holy people. But likewise, within the New Testament, Saints are chosen and set apart. Peter said, But like the Holy One that called you, be holy yourselves also in all your conduct, because it's written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. So there's an expectation that we as followers of Christ be a holy people. And it's, it's our responsibility and, uh, and my question is, how removed are we from our culture? When, when each of us examine ourselves with the inner person, within our hearts, within our consciences, I mean, we have to be in a place, Scripture mandates that we're in a place that we're sensitive, malleable, and in a place to receive and reflect upon the truth of Scriptures and how God's Spirit moves within us. In the, in the mornings, Depends on what time I wake up in the morning. Sometimes it's three, sometimes it's four, but usually I go on a, uh, well, I call it a walk. I walk part of it and jog part of it, but it's, I go out and, and, and run, and, and I spend a little bit of time doing that, and I listen to some podcasts, and one of them that I listen to is Ligonier Ministries. Um, and Ligonier Ministry partnered with, uh, they've been partnering for several years with LifeWay Research since, I believe it's uh, 2014, and every two years they do what they call state of theology, and they send out, they have a survey that they take of, of the United States, uh, and within that they find people that identify as evangelicals to get a heartbeat of understanding where, where people lie, where is the church with its belief, and, uh, and you can go to state of theology if you're interest, interested in it, but I'll have these four points up here that anybody who took the survey that identified as evangelicals, they look at the Bible as the highest authority for what they believe. It's very important as far as evangelism. They, t- they talk about Jesus Christ being their Savior and telling others. They note uh, the necessity of Christ's sacrifice to atone for our sin, to save us from the penalty of it. And then fourth, that only those who receive Christ have eternal salvation, have eternal life. So I think us as believers, we would look at these four things and say, yes, I identify with the people in the survey who claim to be evangelicals. So what are some key findings and how do they relate to holiness? Well, off the bat, I mean, so I, I just 
cut off the website and pasted up here, so some, hopefully you can see it okay. But 97% of the respondents said that they do agree that God created male and female, that those that identify as evangelicals. The next one, 99% agreed with that the biblical accounts of the physical bodily resurrection of Christ actually occurred. 97% say there is one true God in three persons. We would, everybody in this room, I would, I would dare say agree with that. And fourth, this one's a little harder to see, but uh, they, they concur, 91% concur that abortion is a sin. And that's been growing, the, the, the percentages of evangelicals on that have been growing since 2016. But at, at that point is when we start to see uh, uh, a divergence. The same group of evangelicals that identify with the same four points that I mentioned a while ago, we opened in, 50%, 56% agree that God accepts the worship of all religions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. That's false. Scripture clearly teaches against that, but, the, but overall, 56% say that. And, and if we you know, think about what Christ said about himself, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I mean, I mean Judaism doesn't accept Christ, and Islam doesn't recognize him either. Those are totally different religions. Um, 43% agree that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Well, what was, and John opens up saying what? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word is with God, and the Word was God. So we're seeing a divergence of happening within evangelicalism. The Bible, like all sacred texts, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. 26% go with that. So there's some concerning facts as far as within this year right now, 2022, that we see within the evangelical church within America of trends that are uh, infesting itself. Now, 94% do agree that sex outside of marriage is a sin, but look at this one. Gender identity is a matter of choice. 37% hold that view. It's a choice. And 28% say that the Bible's condemnation of homosexual behavior doesn't apply today. So, we can see that evangelicals are in a place that we need restored worship. We, see, we saw some of the key findings, and what do those things communicate? It communicates that we aren't separated from our culture, and we're called to be that. We, we're going to see that Hezekiah led, like Ezra, led the Jewish people into restoration with specific steps. Now, Hezekiah was the king of the, of the, southern, uh, of the southern kingdom. At one time, like under Solomon's reign, the, the, the Jewish people were united. And, uh, but then after Solomon, the kingdom split into the southern kingdom, which is Judah and Benjamin, but we refer to it as the southern kingdom of Judah. Then there was the northern kingdom, and ten tribes went that way, and that's referred to as, uh, as Israel. So King Hezekiah is over the, uh, the southern tribe, which is the more uh, referred to as the, the, the more God-seeking tribe and uh, the uh, sections of the kingdom. But we, we see that uh, when Hezekiah actually took over, that the Israelites needed restoration. They were not in pursuit of God. Under King Ahaz, they had miserably failed. Uh, he had miserably failed in leading them to worship God. And Hezekiah inherited uh, a mess. So 
we're going to see that as chosen people, we need reminders to be a set-apart people. And we'll look to Hezekiah and how he modeled it. These are the three points we're going to learn. We're going to see, uh, and we'll correlate these between what he did in the Old Testament and how it exactly correlates to us now within uh, what the New Testament writers uh, put. But we need to cleanse the temple, sacrifice and worship, and celebrate being set apart. Let's begin. Um, the text today is in 2 Chronicles 29. It'll be uh, chapters 29 through 31, so it's 2 Chronicles 29. And as you're turning there, um, realize that, that uh, I'm going to pull from some other scripture as well. well. The main text is in 2 Chronicles 29, but Hezekiah is also written about uh, in the book of Isaiah and in 2 Kings. The, and, and also at this time, just to give you some awareness that as, under Hezekiah's rulership, while he's there, uh, Isaiah is a prophet and Hosea is a prophet as well. So you have these major and minor prophets that are existing and operating. So uh, 2 Chronicles 29, verse 1. Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. Now, if you're like me, I'll I, I go through and I'll read the scripture. And, uh, uh, and obviously, I mean, I'll be honest, and too, I'm more of an audiovisual person. Reading isn't my first preference. Um, but, but in sitting down to read, I would see these different kings that would cycle through. And I was curious, well, what was the process of how were they crowned king? Uh, as far as for uh, the king of Judah, there was a specific process, and it was a five-part process. It involved the temple and the palace. Three parts occurred in the temple, and then two parts occurred in the palace. The, uh, so initially, within the temple, the king was given the royal crown, and with the royal crown, there were some, uh, some documents that, went, that were issued as well. The first, he was presented with regulations regarding the conduct of the king, like what the, the kingship of Judah required, because there, was a, because there was a Davidic line that was promised. And then, uh, and then he was given the covenant between God and David, the, the Davidic king. A copy of the law was provided to him. And then fourth, the demands of the new office. So that was given along with the royal crown. Next, he was uh, anointed by the priests to show that he is God's chosen one to rule. And then, uh, and then a proclamation was made of the king. You know, we hear, uh, long live the king. Well, that's in their language, that's what they would say, long live the king. The people would proclaim it. And then from there, there'd be a procession going to the temple for the final two acts. They would, uh, they would, the people would gather and, and, uh, and the procession go to the temple and then the seat the king on the throne. And then after that, the highest officials of the land would be received by the king and they would pledge their loyalty to him. Verse 2, And he did what was right in the sight of Yahweh, according to all that David his father had done. And Second Kings says that he trusted in Yahweh, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, for among those who were, nor among those who were before him. So if you want to put some years to it, from the time of Solomon to King Hezekiah, 259 years had passed. And after Hezekiah, there'd be another 113 years that would pass. So he put a stamp on, in the Old Testament on the southern tribe, the kingdom of Judah, of what is expected for restoring worship. This is a nice opening um, bookend for him and uh, of how he did this. So Hezekiah 
So Hezekiah restored worship by demonstrating a first order of business. And let's see how he did it. In verse 5, it says, uh, in verse 3, sorry, 2 Chronicles 29, 3, And the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of Yahweh and repaired them. So he didn't waste any time. First year, first month. He wasn't like, uh, like starting to, to teethe on the copy of the law. I mean, he would have known the copy of the law by the time he got into office. So he was prepared. He remind, it reminds me of Abraham. Abraham had an immediacy to his faith, and he's called the father of our faith. Well, Hezekiah moved quickly, just like Abraham. Abraham had a characteristic of an expeditious faith. Even though it would take time for what he was promised to come to fruition, that was irrelevant. What was relevant was the response in obedience. Verse 4, And he brought in priests and the Levites and gathered them into the square on the east. So he brought in those that were responsible for leading in the temple worship and the formal acts of sacrifice. So he pulled in those directly responsible. So we see that he started with leadership to cleanse the temple. But why start there? I mean, are all of us in leadership positions? Well, in some capacity we are. We may not, in our jobs we may not be, but we have to lead ourselves. Each of us has to wake up in the morning. We have a, a process of whatever we do, we, whether we're going to work, whatever routine we have, we all must lead ourselves with the diligence and intentionality. So Hezekiah started with the leadership. Because you can't take anybody any further than where you've been. Right? A student is not greater than his teacher. Didn't Christ teach that? So Hezekiah led the priests with the intention of the priests being able to lead the Israelites. Let's see in verse 5. Then he said to them, Listen to me, O Levites. Set yourselves apart now as holy and set apart as holy the house of Yahweh. So he's established this expectation of being set apart from the get-go to the leaders. And Hezekiah was in a spiritually healthy place. That's the reason he could lead others to the same place. Because there's actually some, some of the commentaries note, and as we work through the scripture, you'll see it. And if you go back and read the text, you'll see it as well, that some of the priests in this whole process were ashamed of themselves. And it's in, there's an insinuation there that they were participants in the false worship. They were leaders in the false worship that were occurring. But, um, but like Ezra, Hezekiah started with the consecration of the people that led in worship, and then he went to the place of worship and began cleansing that. So, that's, so he started with leaders. The next thing he did to cleanse the temple was confront the failure of their disobedience. We pick up uh, in verse 8 that, um, that, Hez, that it's written, or Hezekiah is talking to the, the Levites and the priests, and he's noting, he's noting that we're an object of terror, of horror, and of hissing. And hissing would be like, meaning that they're contempt or scorn. He, in verse 9, he notes, Our fathers have fallen by the sword. Our sons and daughters and wives are in captivity. So he didn't want to remain in this place of disobedience. He wanted to lead the people out of this. But he knew, based upon the laws of God, that they had to cleanse the temple. And they, uh, so he confronted the failure of their disobedience. But, but where did this start? Where did this stir within him to do this? In verse 10, now it is in my heart to cut a covenant with Yahweh, the God of Israel, that his burning anger may turn away from us. So he started inwardly and then moved outward. He dealt with the attitudes of uh, the heart and then moved to outward actions. 
It's one thing to be able to note, oh, this is what I should do better, right? Because we do that with New Year's resolutions every year, right? I mean, we, we do that. And the, but, but the reality is, is actually stepping into what we've recognized we do wrong and making the change. That's what, that's what we're led into as believers, right? I mean, we see the sin in our lives and we confess, we repent, and we turn to our Savior, Christ. We don't remain there. The third thing, to cleanse the temple, he acknowledged the reality of the challenge that was before him. In verse 11, My sons, do not be at ease now, for Yahweh has chosen you to stand before him, to minister to him, and to be his ministers and offer offerings. So what does it mean to not be at ease? And so your translations may say, uh, it, uh, may say to not be negligent or not be careless. Those are, those are appropriate words, but there's a diligence involved in this. Don't be at ease. You're a set-apart people. You're, you're a set-apart set priest. You're set-apart Levite. God has set you apart because he is a holy God. You're a chosen people. Therefore, you are set-apart, and you have a duty that's involved also, a duty to minister to him and his people, and this is the reason that they were set apart. The fourth uh, thing that he did was follow through, right? We talked about that. It's one thing to identify, but he followed through what was to be done. Verse 15 of chapter 29, And they gathered their brothers, which would be the Levites, set themselves apart as holy, and went into the, to cleanse the house of Yahweh. So now they're cleansing the physical space. They've been consecrated as a group of people, as the priests and Levites. Now they're going into the temple. They can expand what they're doing just beyond themselves. Now they're cleansing the physical space. And they did this, uh, Scripture tells us in chapter, uh, verse 18, that they fulfilled their duty within 16 days. They're, um, and also in 2 Kings, to, to give some little background, or uh, I don't say background, but to, to give some more information on what kind of things they were doing, it says, uh, 2 Kings 18, verse 4, he took away the high places. Now, the high places were centers of worship that were contrary to the Mosaic law. And it says, and he, sh uh, he shattered the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah. Now, the Asherah, are, uh, the Asherah was, a, uh, it was like a stylized wooden tree. So you can think of it with roots coming out of the ground. Uh, it was molded, and it would be like a tree trunk coming up. And sitting on top of it would be their image of what they perceived Asherah to be, which was the mother god of the Canaanites. And that was in the temple. That was in Jerusalem. That was in the northern kingdoms and the southern kingdoms. That was spread throughout. And that was this worship of this is part of the problem for the Israelites. But what was the source that Hezekiah looked to? Did you think he just had a whim of, hey, well, you know what, let's just, I don't like worshiping this God over here, so let's just, let's just remove all of this. Uh, um, I just feel like the priest should be consecrated, so let's do that. No, I mean, what he did was he, had, uh, he referred to the law of Moses and the guidance of the prophets. He didn't whimsically decide these things. There was a standard for him to move in doing it. Uh, in Deuteronomy 12, verses 1 through 3, it says, These are the statutes and the judgments which you shall be careful to do, and the land which Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days you live on earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods. 
on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. And you shall tear down their altars and shatter their sacred pillars, which is exactly what he did, and burn their ashram with fire. And you shall cut the graven image of their gods in pieces and destroy their name from that place. Well, because of a lack of disobedience of part of the Israelites earlier in time, Hezekiah is dealing with it now. The kingdom has shrunk. Assyria has all but overrun uh, the, the northern kingdom of Israel, and they are, they are on the cusp of surrounding pieces of the southern kingdom and already putting pressure on them. Uh, then uh, in Second Kings, it goes on to say, And he broke in pieces the bronze servant, serpent that Moses had made, for in those days the sons of Israel were burning incense to it. So they, were, so they were taking something that was intended for one purpose, the bronze serpent, and using it, they actually began to worship it. So if you're familiar, if you remember the bronze serpent, uh, back the Israelites were, in the, were roaming in the wilderness, and they became impatient. They were angry. Uh, they, they became impatient with God, and they spoke against God and Moses. And Numbers 21 tells us, So Yahweh sent fiery serpents, like with a fiery inflammatory bite, among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. The people realized their sin as a result, and they requested that these snakes be removed, that they not be dying from this. And Yahweh said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it will be that everyone who is bitten and looks at it will live. So Moses did accordingly. He made this bronze serpent, put it on a standard, and then when someone was bit, they could look to it and they would physically be saved. But, but I would read that and think, well, why would they have a, why would they do this? That doesn't make sense. Why would they look to something that, to me, I would think, was that not kind of like an idol in some capacity? Um, but we see in the book of John that Christ actually refers to this. And he says in John 3, John recorded it, uh, and as Moses, li- this is Christ speaking of it, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So may Jesus be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. So the point of the bronze serpent, it was saving God's chosen people from a physical death. And then the point of Christ referring to himself is that that he would be lifted up. So the serpent was lifted up to save people physically, and as Christ would be lifted up on the cross to save people spiritually for eternal life. So the Israelites found themselves in a position where uh, to be positioned for worship that they had to cleanse the temple and they had to cleanse themselves first and then spread that out into actually cleansing the temple. Now the next piece that we'll talk about that Hezekiah demonstrated is, uh, is sacrifice and worship. In verse uh, 20, 2 Chronicles 29, 20, Then King Hezekiah arose early and gathered the princes of the city, and went up to the house of Yahweh. Look, Hezekiah did it again. What did he do? He started with leaders. He's, they set the example. Hezekiah rose early and gathered the princes of the city, and they went. And, you know, and what the leadership also did? The leadership provided the animals for sacrifice. So they were setting example after example of, of what to do. Then worship began. They had offerings and sacrifices on the altars. They had music. In verse 28, it says, While the whole assembly worshipped, the singers also sang, and the trumpets sounded. Verse 30, So they sang praises with gladness and bowed down and worshipped. 
and, and what did all this lead into? I mean, within, this, within chapter 29, it talks about sin offerings being given. It, uh, it talks about the assembly brought sacrifices and thank offerings. They, they gave burnt offerings. They, uh, sin offering, uh, peace offerings, drink offerings, everything. They were just, everything was about worship. Everything was about sacrifice. And as a result, the scripture also says that other priests began setting themselves apart as holy. So, so when we enter, so in this capacity, when Hezekiah was leading the Levites and the priests to help the people lead into worship, that worshipful act actually helped the priests to begin setting themselves apart as a holy people to be leading the Israelites likewise. So uh, in verse 36, it says, of, uh, it says, Then Hezekiah and all the people were glad over what God had prepared for the people because, the king, because this thing came about suddenly. Now this piece moved quickly. So we see that once the temple was prepared, an actual use of it could occur. What it was, in, was intended for could be carried out that it was done so as defined by God, and Hezekiah followed formal biblical mandates to do it, to step into what sacrificial worship is for him. So, now the third point is, is that we're going to see how they celebrated being set apart. The temple's been cleansed. They've already entered into formal sacrifice, sacrificial worship. Now let's look at how, what followed. So there's four parts to them celebrating being set apart. The first one is they had a remembrance of God's intervention. So the, the Jews had feasts and celebrations. I mean, Jim is always thorough in talking about these various uh, celebrations and feasts that occur. We, even this past Wednesday, we were talking about them. You know, and, and now we have ordinances, like whether it's the Lord's Supper or whether we do things in bat, we follow in baptism. Those are things that, are, that we remember. Well, the, so in this, uh, Hezekiah did likewise. He made sure that there were points to be remembered of how God had intervened in the history of the Israelites bringing them out of Egypt. We see that in Second um, Chronicles 30, verse 1, And Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh, which is in the northern kingdom, that they should come to the house of Yahweh at Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover at, to Yahweh, the God of Israel. What's, what's interesting about this is notice the expansion that's occurring. It started with, uh, started with Hezekiah, then it went to the, the, the priests and the Levites. It started in the temple, and then it started within, then, then it went to Jerusalem, and now you have it going throughout the southern and northern kingdoms. Now, much of the northern kingdom had been overrun. The Assyrians were under control, but that didn't mean that there weren't people, isolated pockets of people that still sought God and still worshipped the true God. So he was reaching out to them. They had the feast of Passover and unleavened bread. And verse 13 says that, And many people came together in Jerusalem to keep the feast of unleavened bread, a very great assembly. A huge celebration was occurring. This leads in uh, uh, to the next part that we see, is that as they were celebrating being set apart, the removal of false idols didn't stop. They were growing as a people, as they were a depraved people uh, like us, and they were realizing the more they worshiped, the more they put themselves before the Lord, the more they confessed their sin, the more sin there was to confess. Second Chronicles 30, verse 14, And they arose and took away the altars which were in Jerusalem. They also took away all the incense altars. So their removal was a continual effort 
they weren't one and done. They just didn't confess, oh Lord, we just need to take these ashram poles and remove them. No, they began to it, the spread of what had to occur, that uh, the removal, the continual removal of idols was necessary. I mean, they were no different than us in the capacity of they have this uh, sin plagued them like sin plagues us. But what did they do? They continued celebrating being set apart by setting their hearts to seek God. Verse 18, For a multitude of the people, even many from Ephraim and Manasseh, Issachar and Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves, yet they ate the Passover otherwise than what was written. For Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, May Yahweh, who is good, atone for everyone who prepares his heart to seek God. Yahweh, the God of his fathers, though not according to the rules of cleansing of the sanctuary. So I wonder in this scenario, they didn't follow the exact rules of what was to be done of cleansing. So what do you think God's response was in this scenario? Verse 20 says, So Yahweh heard Hezekiah and healed the people. In this scenario, we see that the attitude of the heart prevailed over the outward activity. And Hosea, which was a minor prophet during uh, the reign of Hezekiah, in chapter 6, verse 1, has this, For I delight in loving kindness rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And Isaiah was another contemporary of, uh, uh, of uh, Hezekiah's. And Isaiah 1 says, uh, captures God's thoughts, uh, captures God's expression of what he felt about the, the worship that he was receiving. This is verse 11. Why are, you multi, uh, why are your multiplied sacrifices, oh, sorry, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me? Says Yahweh, I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. And in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats, I take no pleasure. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. The incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of convocation. I cannot endure wickedness and the solemn assembly. My soul hates your new moon festivals and your appointed times. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Indeed, though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. And this is, so we see here that God looks at the heart of his people. The Israelites uh, weren't, they didn't have enough, uh, the part of the problem was the Israelites didn't even have enough priests that had set themselves apart as holy to be able to do the cleansing process for all the Israelites, this, this gathering that was occurring. So Hezekiah prayed this before the Lord, prayed that, uh, that everybody who had prepared their hearts to seek the Lord would be cleansed before God, and God honored that. And, and we know that this was appropriate because in 2 Chronicles 30, verse 12, it talks about the hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princesses had commanded by the word of Yahweh, which I like that again. He gave, he, he, uh, he gave them one heart of what had been commanded according to the laws of Yahweh. So there, was a, there were principles that were involved of what was, uh, everything was based upon. And finally, in being celebrate being set apart, we look at uh, there's a compounding aspect of worship and remembrance. 
And the more they celebrated being set apart, then the more they worshipped and the more they remembered and served God. In uh, verse 30, in uh, verse 23 of 2 Chronicles 30, it says, Then the whole assembly took counsel to determine to celebrate, to celebrate another seven days. So they celebrated the additional seven days with gladness. Sacrifices continued on the altar. It was the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread that was occurring. So they were continuing in worship, and they were remembering God's intervention in their lives. Verse, 20, uh, verse 24 says, A large number of priests set themselves apart as holy. So this was continuing to occur, the setting apart of being holy. Verse 26, So there was great gladness in Jerusalem, because there was nothing like this in Jerusalem since the days of Solomon. 259 years there had passed since there had been worship like this that had, occur, had occurred. But what was a result of this celebration, this setting apart and all this worship and remembrance that was occurring? We can see in verse 27, Then the Levitical priests arose and blessed the people, and their voice was heard, and their prayer came to his holy habitation to heaven. So now Hezekiah had led the, the priests into being a holy set-apart people. And now these same Levitical priests that had been led by Hezekiah are now leading the people. And we saw how Hezekiah's prayer was answered, and now we see God is hearing the prayer of the priests. Second Chronicles 31 verse, verse 1 says, Now when all this was completed, all Israel who were present went out to the cities of Judah, shattered the pillars, cut the ashram in pieces, and tore down the high places and the altars throughout all Judah and Benjamin, as well as Ephraim and Manasseh, until the destruction was completed. So what do we see again? What does worship do when we celebrate being set apart? Uh, we see with Hezekiah, it started in the temple, it spread to Jerusalem, it spread in the southern kingdom, spread up into the northern kingdom, it spreads, it doesn't stay isolated. Hezekiah led in restoring worship. Uh, he had done something. He took a religious system that had been broken for 259 years and simply by being obedient to the laws of Moses and following the guidance of the prophets, he rebuilt it within 14. Now, the points I'm covering this morning happened quickly. There, uh, he began to build infrastructure uh, according to the law, and he began supplying, uh, he encouraged the people to tithe, and as the people began to tithe at the temple, it was supporting the priests, and not only supporting the priests at the, at the temple in Jerusalem, but then you had cities of priests throughout the Jewish nation, and then uh, and, and these people and their families were beginning to be supported, so there was an infrastructure, a network that was being honored to, to, to hold the people accountable of holiness, they were having these, these priests were throughout the nation. So uh, as these, these false idols had been throughout the nation, now they were in a place of actually resourcing to build up the, the Israelite people themselves. Now, uh, now, it took 14 years to do this because eventually the Assyrians want Jerusalem. They want the southern kingdom, and they lay siege to it. And, uh, which, is, which I like to read it because when you, when you read all, all, all the context of how it took, uh, it wasn't something quickly that happened to, re, to restore worship, it took time. But then after everything was done, the first thing Scripture says is after, these, after the faithful acts of Hezekiah, then this horrendous thing happened to the Assyrians coming and, and coming after them. So th that communicates too that 
no matter what the circumstances. Like when Hezekiah took over as the king, it was horrible circumstances uh, that uh, that the that they were that the kingdom that the southern kingdom of Judah was under. But he able he was able to rely upon the principles of Scripture of, of the law of Moses and the guidance of the prophets to lead them out of it. And likewise, that's what we'll be looking at now within us, but with with uh, with us about what do we base our uh, our growth in, our restoration of the church. Because as God's people, as Christ's church, we have similar problems now. I mean, we don't give God the honor that's due Him in worship. We don't fully embrace all the commands of Scripture. I mean, look at some of the, the, the results of the study that we're sh- I was showing you on the screen. That's 2022. That's the evangelical American church of what is, what is infiltrating it. We have idols that permeate our lives. We're, we're surrounded by a culture, and we're in the midst of a culture, and we're absorbing pieces of it. We're not living a set-apart life fully. So let's look at some of the application points. The first one is in uh, cleansing the temple. Now, we saw that in the Old Testament, the temple was cleansed as in through a physical space. But the New Testament, this shifted. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, of 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are a sanctuary of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? The ESV says, do you, uh, do you not know that you are God's temple? And Paul goes on to the Corinthians church in his second letter, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16, Or what agreement has a sanctuary of God or God's temple have with idols? For we are a sanctuary of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. So we are to be set apart. Uh, we need to align our lives with God and how He defines what worship is to be. So in doing this, when we need to be in a place, if we are God's temple and we need to be cleansing ourselves, we need to be tackling those idols. But, but, um, so in doing that, what are things that defile us? What are things that hinder us? What are things that, that block us from being set apart? And that instead, and also what are things that join us to the culture? We need to follow one of Hezekiah's four steps uh, in cleansing the temple, and that is acknowledge the challenge that's in front of us. The Apostle Paul wrote about the conflicting two natures. He wrote in Romans 7, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the working out of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But even with that challenge that's there, he clearly set an expectation in chapter 13, verse 14, still to the the church in Rome, he wrote, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. So like as Hezekiah, we need to remove the idols, but what but what are these uh, idols? I mean, don't be like me. I mean, in, in the, in, sometimes I would, I'd read the scripture and I would look at the idols and I would just gloss past it thinking, well, I don't have an ashram pole and I don't have a golden calf song. Okay. But, but, that's, but the reality is, is they didn't believe that little golden calf or deity did anything for them either. What, what they believed, as far as uh, historically speaking, when people would make idols in that time, they would look at them as thinking that there was a God with a small g that inhabited it. That wasn't literally a their god but it was a god that inhabited it and there would be an exchange between it and them as the worshiper that it would grant them things well let's work through some of the 
the, the idols? What about greed for us? I mean, the shape of money, right? There's a golden calf, there's an ashram pole. What about the shape of money or digital thing or a digital number that pops up on a screen? That by itself is not something that any of us will worship. But if we hoard it for what we perceive it gives us, now we're exchanging something for it. Now it becomes an idol. Because are we choosing to rest in it or God? Because he promises to take care of us. What about an idol of you get awards or titles? I mean, accomplishments in and of themselves are not a bad thing. I mean, diligence uh, is a good thing. We're expected to, uh, I mean, to serve whatever we do. We're expected to serve the Lord so that there's an excellence that goes along with it, whether it's our work or home, whatever it is. So accomplishments would be a natural byproduct. But, um, but what if we uh, like those accomplishments and those titles and those awards because we perceive it gives us something, it brings us something, or it gives us honor that's really not ours because God supplied for us to be who we are with our temperaments and the gifts that he's given us are we not giving God his glory that's his or um, think of the LGBTQ community there's right now I mean what is so huge about people feeling like they're born they're not born into the correct body I mean does the allure of physically alterating uh, physically altering uh, surgery, does that uh, give somebody some kind of perceived internal rest that, oh, well, then I can, once this happens, I can rest in really who I am. But that's an idol because there is no rest apart from God. God is our only rest. The acceptance of Christ as our personal Savior is our only hope. But, the, but people perceive that something like that surgery might give them, there's an exchange that they perceive would occur. We can also think of it this way. I mean, we, as, as evangelicals, may condemn people who don't identify with their assigned gender at birth. But do we fail to honor our own assigned roles within marriage? I mean, are there husbands willing to defer their responsibility of the leadership of the family to their spouse, to their wife? Are there wives who are wanting to go, will operate outside of their uh, assigned role and want to assert the leadership of the husband i mean those uh in each case there's an exchange that occurs whether someone doesn't agree with their assigned gender at birth or someone doesn't agree with their assigned role in the marriage there's an exchange that occurs because both are contrary to scripture we have to align ourselves with what scripture teaches hezekiah followed the law of moses and followed the instruction of the prophets period that's what he did and if we want to be in a place of cleansing the temple then we need to be in a place of recognizing what does Scripture say and honoring it, giving it more lip service. Because we saw in the survey that uh, the evangelicals uh, identified with the Bible being their source of authority. But then you saw some slides that clicked on a little bit later that there clearly were some contradictions between what Scripture teaches and, the, and what authority they give Scripture in their lives. And, and I'll uh, say this, what about... Uh, the evangelical uh, westernized church may condemn acts of abortion that bring physical death. What was that, 91% or 90-something percent of evangelicals disagree with it? But, uh, but, do, but do we condemn abortion and at the same time hate the people and have hate and anger in our hearts, deep resentment within our hearts towards the people that support it or that do it? 
I mean, what's, whatever the circumstances are, we have to guard the attitudes of our heart because in this kind of scenario, no, uh, the circumstances that surround us, someone else's actions don't determine our attitudes. We're still called to align with what Scripture teaches. That's our responsibility as followers of Christ. As a set-apart people, we are called to be in a place that we align with Scripture alone, no matter what the actions are around us, no matter what the, the circumstances are that persist. Um, think about good works. I mean, what are reasons that we do good works? Uh, in Hebrews 13, 16, we're told, um, we're told to do good and share what we have, for this is a pleasing sacrifice to God. That's an excellent thing, right? Because we're supposed to be living sacrifices, so we need to be doing good works. Because uh, the good works glorify God. Jesus taught that. He said, uh, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. But do we do good works because of that, which isn't an idol? That's giving God glory. Or do we do good works for acknowledgement, for our own glory, for a pat on the back, for social acceptance? I mean, one is, acceptable, is an acceptable sacrifice in worship, and one is an exchange for our own glory. So tackling idols is something that takes courage. Do not be at ease, right? Hezekiah said it. You have to be diligent. You can't be negligent. You can't be careless. There has to be honest reflection in our lives. There has to be confession of what those idols are that we, that we put up there. Um, some of the, the best people I've seen, some of my personal friends and even family, that are the strongest in, uh, in uh, understanding the necessity of this are people that have been through addiction recovery. Because why? I mean, when, you, when you're in addiction <clears throat> recovery, I mean, you've been deceived. And, and the reality is, is that the only way to survive is to lay it before the Lord. That is it. The only way your physical existence makes it is if you were so brutally honest with yourself that you say, Lord, these are all of my idols. The only way I can live is if you'll just take them from me. That's it. But are we as brutally honest with ourselves? I mean, unfortunately, people in addiction, addiction recovery can even be marginalized much in society, much less within the church. But then there's others of us that, that can do things that are less, less visible, and we're just as guilty. We, have just the, we may have even bigger idols in our lives, or they're at least the same size before our Lord that searches the heart. We have to be in a place of cleansing the temple as believers. The next thing is sacrifice and worship. And once, uh, I mean, when we worship, do our inner attitudes have a reverential view of God? Does this reverence produce a definitive response that's holy and that we are set apart? And this is supposed to be characteristic of everything that we do. Paul gave a mandate for it because we, Paul said that we are God's temple, that we are living sacrifices. In Romans 12.1, he says that we are to be living holy and pleasing to God in how we execute our lives. And this is our spiritual service of worship, not our spiritual choice of worship, not our spiritual option of worship. It is our spiritual service of worship. This is a standard that we're called to. Peter wrote about it, 1 Peter 1, 14-15. He said, um, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts 
which were yours in ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your conduct. Martin Luther captured it remarkably well as far as anybody who could write something apart from Scripture. In 1519, he was having to write some comments to clarify a teaching he had done on holiness. And he was talking about the human holiness to the layman. And he wrote, See, now you understand what hallowing is, what holy means. It is nothing but a separation from misuse to divine use. As, as a church is consecrated and set apart for the sole purpose of divine service, so our entire life is to be hallowed that no activity be carried on within us except such as honors the name of God, that is, kindness, truth, righteousness, and the like. Therefore, the name of God is hallowed or profaned, <clears throat> not only with the lips, but also with all the members of the body and the soul. So when we enter into a worship that must be sacrificial, we're set apart holy people, where does that mean we have to exude this in our lives and show it? It means we show it at home, at work, when we're doing our home improvement projects on the weekend warrior stuff, if we're on a jog, if we're at the grocery store, at the lumber yard, if we're reading a book, if we're listening to music, if we're watching TV, everywhere is supposed to be a place of sacrificial worship. Everywhere we go and whatever harbored private thoughts we may have at all these places are supposed to be the excavation, are supposed to be a place that we go before the Lord and that we are a pleasing sacrifice to Him, living, holy, and pleasing. We are called to be God's temple. Uh, Deuteronomy 16.12, I want you all to think about the weight of this verse. It was regarding the Passover sacrifice, but think about this. Scripture says, You shall worship in the place Yahweh chooses for His name to dwell. You shall worship in the place that Yahweh chooses for His name to dwell. Well, his, we are God's temple, right? So He dwells. He has chosen us and allowed us to dwell with Him when we accept Christ as our personal Savior. When his spirit is within us. And this leads us into the, the third piece of restoring worship as far as we celebrate being set apart. So when we use our body as a temple and worship that's sacrificial, this leads us to being, uh, to being set apart. But does this celebrating exponentially impact our attitudes on the inside and our actions that show do we continually dig deeper because there's a diligence that's involved in this? I mean, are we setting our hearts to seek God intentionally? Are we destroying more, uh, more idols in our lives? And as we grow in worship, are we seeking and seeking? And as we see the holiness of God in Scripture, are we comparing that against the backdrop of our own lives and realizing our own shortcomings and just confessing more and more? And are we not only keeping it contained to ourselves, but are, is it spreading like it did in Hezek when Hezekiah led the people? It started at the temple, went to Jerusalem, went to the southern kingdom, went to the northern kingdom. Is it spreading in all aspects of our lives? Do we remember his intervention in our lives? Well, I know we have the remembrance in our lives. Here's a church. We celebrated it. Well, we, uh, we had the Lord's Supper recently. We had baptisms a couple Sundays ago. Those are all acts of remembrance. Those are all worshipful acts. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 5, 7 through 8. 
said, For Christ, our Passover lamb, also was sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That's what we're called into. In, in John 4, he, uh, Christ spoke, of him, spoke that, you know, the God, that, that, that our God, the God, uh, wants worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. So my encouragement, my exhortation, as far as we read scripture is, are we digging deeper to restore it? Are we excavating and exploring all aspects of our lives to be a holy, set-apart people? Because that's what we're called towards. I mean, implement these pieces of Hezekiah. Look what Hezekiah wrote about and, and what he had to do to lead a nation that for 259 years had disregarded the, the true worship of God, and he led them into that. That's one thing to lead them into something they were already doing. He had to turn the ship. He had to rely upon the, the, the law of Moses and the guidance of the prophets to turn that. So let it be like a, a book into our lives as it is for Hezekiah in this 14-year period. In 2 Chronicles 31, 20-21, it says, Thus Hezekiah did throughout Judah, and he did what was good, right and true before Yahweh his God and every work which he began in the service of the house of God in law and in commandment to seek his God he did with all his heart and he succeeded let's close in prayer and then uh, we'll close this teaching in prayer and then the the, uh, the worship team will come up father thank you that the your scripture is so beautiful and is so powerful and uh, and that you were so righteous and thank you, God, that you can go to the deepest place of where we are within, our inner, within the inner person and that your spirit can change us. And thank you that you give us the opportunity to be a part of joining you and aligning you with your kingdom work. And may we be a restored people before you. In your sons, let me pray. Amen. Let's all stand together as we end in worship. So in Isaiah 45, 5, God says, I'm Yahweh and there is no other. There's no God beside me. So we're going to sing a song here that talks about how Jesus is worthy. And let's worship him 